on this episode. Took a shot in the chest. Yep. And then I was like, yeah, fuck it. Yep. Yep. Still was like, yeah, I'm not, my bullets, the bullets not my You know, people that hated him were like, what the fuck? Can this guy die? Like, you know what I mean? Like, can he be killed? Yeah. Can't hit him on a horse. And then when you finally do hit him right in the freaking chest, he's just like, eh. He just shrugs it off. Yeah, I'm okay. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of No Country for Old Mark and Juan. I am your host, Mark Pearson, and this is my co-host... Well, that would be Juan. (laughs) Yes. Alrighty, everybody. Uh, You know the deal. Please rate, subscribe, review, send us a message, facebook.com slash nocountrypodcast, instagram.com at... Oh, my gosh. At Instagram, sorry. Uh, No underscore country underscore podcast. Uh, Also on Twitter at... At podcast underscore country, uh, no country podcast at gmail.com. And then also you can send us a voicemail at 346-291-0050. Now that that's out of the way, a quick update for everybody. Uh, actually, right now, Sandra, at the time of this recording anyway, Sandra is doing the semifinals for her uh, your comedy contest. And we already had this set up to record. And I've also been sick for the last couple of days. So sadly, I was unable to make it, but I have a lot of faith in her. She's one of the final 16. So I'm sure when she's done, she'll tell me if she advanced or not. I hope she did because she's hilarious. And also, I got my J-Flex hoodie, and it's really nice hoodie. The graphics are really nice, and it's just really comfortable, warm hoodie. I See, that's another thing I haven't gotten to yet. Yeah, but you've been sick for a month. I've been sick for a few days. You get a pass. Just don't leave poop by my front door. <laughs> On fire in a bed. <laughs> yeah, I had this really nasty, bad head cold. You know, sore throat, head congestion, all that. I didn't sleep for like three nights. I mean, like only slept for like a couple hours a night. Just it was so bad, and like nothing I did. Literally, I tried everything I could to sleep, and I couldn't sleep. But finally today, I felt a little bit better. So. All day today, I did research for this episode and wrote out everything I needed for it. And it was a really good to have something to do. But then a, uh, now we're just going to get through this. I'm not going to rush through it, but I'm going to try to go kind of try to go easy on myself because my voice is still a little scratchy. If you can hear it, I mean, if you're not, that's cool. But you know, I'm I'm. <clears throat> I know me. I was in that spot you're at right now a couple weeks ago. Yeah. I was like, do I do it or not, man? I'm just, but I'm, my personality, if you know me, you know I'm one of those people where I have the mentality of, like, the show must go on. Like, for I've, I've never been married, and I've never really been babied or coddled to, so I've always had this, typically, usually, and also it actually, I, I was thinking about this earlier today, it goes back to, like, when I was young, and I was, like, 23, and I got diagnosed with ulcerative colitis, and for those of you who don't know, ulcerative colitis is a digestive disorder where your colon has issues, and it bleeds, and you have diarrhea, and it's very, very painful. It's very sexy, and maybe it's one reason why you weren't married. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe, but a, uh, uh, it was like, when I say painful, I mean like excruciating pain where I'm doubled over, like moaning, like painful, very, 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 very painful. I do, it's something I'm like people that I just, 
irk me and i don't say i hate people there's nobody i really hate but there's people that i don't appreciate i hate everyone (laughs) no i'm not like that (laughs) but a uh even people that I have problems with, I would not want them to suffer through it because it's bad. But because I went through that and I had that for a while, I just learned to like overcome my pain or overcome my physical discomfort just by formulating a positive mental attitude and just pushing through it. So like there was many days where I felt terrible or I had a fever or I was in extreme pain and I just worked anyway because I was like, I have to make a living. I can't count on anybody else to pick up the slack. So I just pushed through whatever I was going through and, you know, did it like occasionally once in a while it would get so bad I would take a day off on like the worst of the worst days. But that was still only like once or twice a year. I'm more the and. typical male that uh, gets a head cold and can't even, you know, make it to the bed. Help me. Yeah. Help. I'm the baby bastard that just offsets that whole scale. On the other hand, you're like, you pathetic mess. Get up and do something. For I can't. I've got a fever. <laughs> and see, that's something I like. I don't really understand. And actually, I realized a few years ago um, that there are times where I push myself too hard physically when I shouldn't. Like I got sick and my ex at the time was like, you know what? You should rest. And I was like, no, no, I can do it. And she was like, no, seriously. You know, she works in the healthcare field and she was like, you should take care of yourself. She's like, you working right now when you're sick and feeling terrible is only going to make you worse. And it kind of like hit me. So I was like, okay, I need to rein myself in and, Like, I need to know when it's okay to push through something and when it's not okay to push through something. So this is one of those days where, you know, the show must go on. I'm not, I'm going to push through it because it's not the worst thing in the world. The worst thing that could happen is I lose my voice, but I don't think that's going to happen. I've been drinking tons of water. I had a bunch of spicy pho soup to clear out my junk, and I think it's going to work out fine. Uncle Boris uses vodka. (laughs) (laughs) Speaking of that and Uncle Boris, here in the studio... Um, I've started my collection of stuff on topics that we've talked about with two, a, uh, two pictures that I put up. Uh, one of them is a giant bear being ridden by being ridden by the shirtless Vladimir Putin, who is holding a bottle of vodka and the Russian flag. I'm pretty sure Jasmine's going to ask me to take it down when she sees it, but I don't care. (laughs) And the other one is a quote in a picture from today's subject, Theodore Roosevelt, the 26th president of the United States. So, uh, I never, like, I'd always, you know, like, you briefly touch on him in school growing up when you're taking American history, but it's more like, you know, a few paragraphs and that's it. So, growing up, you know, obviously I studied American history in school, but, you know, I knew who he was and he was on, you know, he's one of the four presidents on Mount Rushmore, but there's not that much I knew about him because it wasn't like I went and read a book on him or a whole lot of history class was dedicated to him. So actually a few years ago, I learned more about him and then, you know, I was like, you know, what? I should do an episode on him because he's actually a really interesting person, especially for his time. Ooh, okay. So... He was born on October 27th in 1858 in Manhattan, New York. Uh, The Roosevelt family was a high-class family. His mother was a socialite. Uh, If you want to know what that is, it's basically someone famous for being famous, like the Kardashians. And uh, although, you know, his mom didn't have to do a sex sex tape to get famous. Uh, His his father was a successful businessman and philanthropist. 
Uh, according to the biog, bi- oh my goodness, biographer Jeffrey C. Ward, the Roosevelts were, p- oh my goodness, here's a word that I don't know how to pronounce. And I wrote it down. Do what I do. <laughs> just make them up. <laughs> <laughs> patricians. That's what it is. Uh, the Roosevelt's were patricians, and they were born and raised to believe that they were better than other people. So kind of like aristocrats or noblemen. That's they very well-off family, like all of the Roosevelt's are. Uh, however, not all of the Roosevelt's had this mentality. Some of them got into politics to try and bring change to America and for the common good of every American citizen. So Theodore Jr., his dad was Theodore Roosevelt Sr. Uh, He had three siblings. He had an older sister and a younger brother and a younger sister. His uh, younger brother would become the father of future First Lady Eleanor Roosevelt, who would marry her distant cousin, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, who was the son of Theodore's fourth cousin. So Imagine that. They kept it in the family. Like, they were really, really far apart. They were fourth cousins, but they kept it in the family. Uh, you sure that wasn't Kentucky? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Positive. But the good thing for her is she didn't have to change her last name. I guess not. <laughs> they had the same name already. Uh, and they actually grew up in, like, different areas. So, like, you know, obviously they would see each other occasionally at family functions, but it wasn't like their, their family, were, family was so far removed they weren't super tight-knit or anything. Okay, but anyways, we're back to Theodore now. Theodore Jr. was born and soon diagnosed with severe asthma and overall very poor health. He had frequent fevers and problems, and his asthma was chronic and so bad that it felt like he was being strangled. So imagine that. I'd rather not. <laughs> yeah. And he was in, he was first diagnosed when he was three. So you're like, you're a child at three and you feel like you're being strangled on a semi-regular basis whenever you have an asthma attack. And he turned out such a great human being and not a serial killer. It's amazing. <laughs> well, th- th- we'll get into that and why. It's, it's, it's amazing. Like he definitely one of those people that let his, you know, the adversity in his life make him a better person. Uh, th- there was no cure from the doctors and no help, really. So they would frequently move him around, you know, different spots and areas trying to find him a place where he could breathe more comfortably. This setback didn't hinder him at all. He was very energetic and curious about everything, even though he was small for his size. Like he was a very small, tiny, sickly little kid. As he grew up, he learned that the more he exercised, the less his asthma bothered him, along with a more positive mental attitude. From that point on in his life, he kept up a regular habit of very heavy exercise. This dude would make the workout freaks that I know feel ashamed, I'm sure. Like really. He he took he took exercise like to the extreme. And I'm not even kidding. He loved books about history, science, and adventure. He grew up to be curious about animals. He uh whoo. <coughs> Also, as a young boy, he saw, when he was seven years old, uh, he saw a dead seal at a local market, which sparked his interest in zoology. He took the seal head home with him, and along with his two cousins, started what they called the Roosevelt Museum of Natural History. 
Theodore then learned about taxidermy and took lessons in taxidermy. He would then grow to collect many animals for his museum, both alive and dead. And actually, that was one of the stories. Like the servants in his home, they it would he would drive them nuts by like putting like dead mice in his sock drawer and stuff like that, and they would freak out when they found it and stuff. I'm sure he was like a mischievous little kid. They were sick and tired of finding dead animals everywhere. Yeah, he sounded pretty white right now. I don't. <laughs> it could go either way at this point. Uh. <laughs> so, Theodore Jr. really looked up, really looked up to his father as he was growing up. His father, Theodore Sr., was a strong supporter of the Union during the American Civil War. He also helped found the Metropolitan Museum of Art, the American Museum of Natural History, and he expected his children to behave properly. Theodore Jr. said of his father, he would not tolerate us children, oh, sorry, he would not tolerate in us children selfishness or cruelty, idleness, cowardice, or untruthfulness. And then his father also took the family on trips around the world to Egypt and Europe so they could gain experience and knowledge. Oh, that deep pocket kind of helps. Yeah, his, actually, the Roosevelt family, uh, he had, you know, they had all kind of, well, his dad had grown up in it, but, you know, he was a successful businessman. They worked in, like, the family worked in, like, real estate, banking, glass importing, and, you know, a few other import things like that. So they were they were all very successful businessmen. And Theodore's dad actually was really uh, passionate about his philanthropy. He donated half of his time during the week to help, like, uh, charities and other causes. And he started, like, uh, a couple of charities for, like, young boys and girls, too, for, for, like, orphans and stuff. So he was really serious about his, you know, charity. He wasn't just someone who did it for, you know, tax breaks. Or just wrote checks, yeah. Yeah. So he was he was very passionate and serious about it. So Theodore's mother was from the South, in Georgia, actually. And she was very devoted to her family there. So much so that she begged her husband not to fight in the war against the South. She couldn't bear it if her husband took up arms against her homeland. So, feeling the pressure, Theodore Sr. reluctantly gave in to his wife's pleadings and paid for a substitute. Now, during the Civil War, there a was substitute. a draft. Yeah. <laughs> so, during the Civil War, there was a draft. But if you had enough money, you could, what they called, pay for a substitute and buy your way out. So, many wealthy people who could afford it did just that. Theodore Sr. did this, but he regretted it for the rest of his life. He felt that it was the wrong decision. And Theodore Jr. saw this as the only time his father made a choice that wasn't heroic, and he was disappointed in his father when he did this. Yeah, well, you know, he's laying the law down, and then he buckled. <laughs> yeah. So... <laughs> and actually, this this event, like Theodore looked up to his dad so much. This one event would sh- like actually shape some of his choices later on in life and make a make a whole lot of more sense and why he did some of the things he did later on. So Theodore Jr. at this time was growing up in a somewhat divided home. His father would go out to the Union camps to ask soldiers to send a portion of their pay home to their families to help them out. His father was also, he also worked with Abraham Lincoln to set up like a fund to help people at home. Cause like, I guess what these civil war guys were doing was keeping their pay and then their families would just have to fend for themselves. 
So it was pretty rough, but Theodore Sr. would go out and he would, you know, camp to camp being like, hey, will you give me something for this fund so we can help the people back at home too? It's not, you know, I know the war sucks, but, you know, help your family too. So he was still had a big heart and was going out and trying to make a difference even during the war. But uh, his wife was at home and she would secretly find goods that were scarce for the South and then had them smuggled to the Confederates. What a trifling hoe. <laughs> like it's bad enough you made the man of steel buckle for your ass and now you're being a bitch. Yeah. So uh, now those are actually, Juan's words, not official historical. <laughs> no, like, yeah. well, these are history according to Juan, not to. Damn, what a bitch! <laughs> <laughs> uh, so actually, her brothers and Theodore Jr.'s uncles during the Civil War helped build and sail ships for the South, which accounted for the sinking of sixty Union ships during the war. So these guy guys were successful sailors and shipbuilders these stories from the war sparked theodore jr's interest in ships and the navy something that he would keep an interest in for his entire life and guns he needs to learn how to shoot because they shot oh actually 60 of them suckers <laughs> <laughs> actually there's a cool story about when uh theodore jr was 14 his dad took him outside and uh said gave him a rifle and he said here shoot this target and he like emptied the gun and he couldn't hit anything and his dad was like i don't think you can see all that well and went and bought him glasses and then he could see well enough to shoot but even then he still had very very poor vision so the dude just his body was just not cooperating with him i know how he feels <laughs> so after the end of the Civil War, the division in the Roosevelt home ended. However, his father's choice to buy his way out of military service made Theodore Jr. feel like he had to make up for his father's lack of action in helping his country. This became like a very fundamental, strong, mating, strong motivating force for him during the rest of his life. And also, after the war ended, at the funeral procession of Abraham Lincoln... Theodore and his brother watched the procession from the window of their grandfather's mansion in Union Square in New York City. And there is actually a photo of the two of them in the window and the procession going by. And I've seen the photo. It's pretty cool. Those are some nice digs to watch. Yeah. Procession. Yeah. <laughs> so... As a young boy, Theodore was picked on a lot because he was small, and his younger brother would often try to shield him from bullies. Finally, the frustrated Theodore asked for and received a boxing coach so he could fight the bullies off himself. Uh, he, his, you know who his boxing teacher was? A prize fighter. Like for real? He had, for real. He, they hired like a legit prize fighter to teach this kid how to box. So he just was like, oh, okay. <laughs> like, I mean, they were filthy rich family, so, you know, it wasn't like it was anything to them. But they were like, oh, our kid wants to learn how to beat up bullies? Oh, we'll get a prize fighter in here. But a uh, theater didn't take no B from nobody. He didn't take anything. Uh, his father would often urge him to overcome his asthma with more and more physical activity. So on the third floor of their home, they had exercise equipment for him to use to stay in shape, like bars and 
whatever else they had at the time. But they were like, oh, we're going to build this gym, this kid a gym so, you know, he can, you know, overcome his asthma. And so he became very adamant about doing that himself. He never fully overcame his asthma, but the constant struggle taught him that life is an ongoing battle. So as Theodore continued to grow up, he was constantly looking for a challenge or for something to do. He was always moving, swimming, shooting, running, and hiding. He hardly ever won a physical contest, but he always tried his best and then kept on trying. This kid is inspiring. Like, a lot of kids, like, oh, I didn't win the race. I'm done now. And, like, you see that so often. Like, people, I don't want to do it. I suck at it. He, like, didn't win, like, that's what the research shows. Like, he almost never won a contest but he's like i'm gonna do it again i'm gonna do it again just kept on going very very persistent he always had abundant amounts of energy it makes me think that if he was raised in like this day and age uh people would just want to put him on ritalin because they thought he was had adhd or he was just too wild yeah definitely if he's putting mice in uh drawers that's (laughs) That's gonna that's gonna get you on medication in the modern world. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Real quick. Good thing he wasn't born in the modern world. Uh, the <laughs> he was a uh, allowed to be himself. So uh, theater Theodore Junior later would write: Get action, do things, be sane. Don't fritter away your time. Create, act, take a place wherever you are, and be somebody. Get action. And that was his motto, get action. And don't fritter. Exactly. Whatever the hell frittering is. <laughs> Look that shit up. <laughs> probably, probably sounds like a uh, wasting time because don't fritter away your time. Don't waste your I time. I thought it was like a message to chicks that eat ranch. <laughs> what? That would be the modern version of it. Don't ranch. <laughs> Don't don't Chicks get offended. <laughs> you did it to yourself. Look in the mirror. It's not my fault. Can't hate me. I didn't put the ranch in your face. Oh Listen goodness. to Teddy. Don't be frittering. <laughs> what an asshole. I'm so horrible friend. Just horrible. Horrible friend. <laughs> So I'm sorry. speechless. <laughs> How the hell did he get there? How, what happened? Exactly. I know. <laughs> Welcome to my brain. <laughs> wow. In the wise world, now see later on, I'll fuck that up, right? I'll be telling the story. I'm like, you know, like, yeah. like Teddy Roosevelt said, stop eating ranch, bitch. Like, what? <laughs> uh, oh, my goodness. Okay. So, uh, Theodore Jr. was homeschooled by tutors and his parents. Shout out to homeschooling. I was homeschooled too. Uh, He was a very smart boy, but struggled in math and classical languages such as Latin and Greek. Well, duh. (laughs) Yeah, we're all Who doesn't struggle in Latin and Greek? Like, I was reading this thing about him talking about him in school, and whoever was writing it was talking like, oh, Latin and Greek. Like, how could he? Well, it's Latin and Greek. He was great in French and German, so he learned French and German, and he knew English, but oh, how dare he not know Latin and Greek and struggle at it? Like, he's like, seriously? What? He's killing it in Aramaic. What are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> that is funny. When you, when you come from, which I did too, I came from private school. 
And my son went to a public high school for one year. And when I <coughs> realized in the difference was he was a sophomore in, in high school and he brought home a coloring project. And I was <laughs> like, oh, so this is why we're getting our ass kicked, apparently. We're coloring yeah. in 10th grade. And over in Germany, they're <laughs> calculating destruction. Like, what? You know what I mean? Like, yeah. People complain about like school being difficult. But it's like, it's our education system is probably, to be perfectly honest, uh, not not to the standards of some of the rest of the modern world. You know oh, what dude, I mean? We're not even America's not even in the top twenty-five anymore. That doesn't surprise me. It's it's not. It's like in well, our language alone is so confusing and difficult. (laughs) Anyone that even knows languages, people that you know that speak multiple languages, will always tell you English is the worst, especially to write because we have rules. But like with everything else, there's always an exception. Right. It's like you could fail or you could uh, could buy a partner way out. Yeah. And give that A to a guy named, you know yourself and then uh, give the f to someone else because you could buy your way out of it or you could fritter away that <laughs> and have some ranch instead <laughs> you just fritter your way to a classmate and uh, she'll do the work for you <laughs> that's horrible why is it always that i make it that it's like a woman that, that ranches there's, some, I don't there's know. some fat ranch boys out there oh yeah there definitely is i think you're one of them i don't do the ranch though no, you don't like ranch? No, I know. It's surprising. <laughs> well, I, I am shocked. I love ranch, especially with my pizza. Are you serious? Uh, that was, Yeah. Okay. Dipping dip ranch and pizza is delicious. Not, pizza and ranch. Dipping ranch and pizza. Okay, ah. not to get off subject, but that was the first time when I first saw someone eat pizza and put ranch on it. Yeah. It was the first time I went in, in my life and I went, oh, that's just got to be death. <laughs> this person just threw in the towel on all hopes of ever wanting to look decent. And they were young and they were and I was like, you know that if you continue to eat like that, you're going to be huge. And uh it's not my fault that to this day this person blew up like yeah. So that's why I always tell my boys like when you get dating, watch for the ranch eaters. If the girl puts that ranch <laughs> on that pizza, First, you need to see the mom to see where the genetics lie. And most likely, it's a runaway situation. I'm sorry. <laughs> Watch listen, for the Listen, I tell my boys all the time, there's plenty of pretty girls with decent personality. You don't got to. Isn't that horrible? I, am I a bad dad? <laughs> I just don't want, like, a bunch of their fat girlfriends coming over eating all my food. You know what I mean? Like, get, get one of those skinny girlfriends where they go, oh, no, I've had two bites. I'm good. I, that's why Jackson's welcome back. She can come over anytime. She's not putting a dent on the food Jas- at all. <laughs> it's like I tease Jasmine. I'll be like, you walk in a room and smell. Oh, that smells delicious. Oh, I'm full now. <laughs> She's like, stop it. I'm like, oh. If it's something she really likes, like dessert, she'll put it away. But otherwise, she's just like, oh, I'll have a snack. And I'm like, okay, that's cool. More from me. Because I'm, I'm just a bottomless pit. <coughs> oh, my goodness. So Theodore, then after, you know, completing school, like elementary and high school, like he, uh, sorry, wow. He attended Harvard College in 1876. And when he left, his father told him, take care of your morals first, your health next, and finally your studies. 
And I feel like the current world would be a whole lot better place if parents raised their kids this way. Also, I understand this mentality quite a lot because my family raised me with a very similar outlook and mentality. Like, morals first, health next, and then finally your studies. Uh, let's just say I wasn't really raised that way. Uh, I was raised in educations for idiots. Uh, eat what you want and... Uh, uh, life's going to suck. Don't be an adult because once you are, you're going to be unhappy for the rest of your life. <laughs> Have a nice life, kid. <laughs> you honest, we didn't even mention morals. <laughs> yeah. What are more? You're, you're probably like morals looking it up in the dictionary. No, actually, my mother, my mother was real, real churchy, you know, and really tried to. Yeah. And so I do have. You know, a level of morality, but it's probably not at the standards of which she would like. <laughs> <laughs> That's probably true. <laughs> uh, when he was in college, he kept up his rapid physical pace. His classmates said that when he wasn't in a place where running was frowned upon, he was running everywhere. He also kept up with his taxidermy and live animal collection in college. How did he do that? Just like kept him in his room, I guess. This dude like, must oh, have parrots are over there. He must have had a ton of energy to be doing all this. Oh yeah, he he. Uh, I'm yeah, exhausted he just he... hearing it. <laughs> he felt that the science classes at Harvard were too dry, and in one class he spoke up and talked so much. One professor said, "See here, Roosevelt, let me talk." So the professors were like, "Shut up!" He was just constantly energetic and out you know outspoken in uh, 1877 the following year theodore senior was nominated by president rutherford b hayes to be the collector of customs in an attempt to bring about civil service reform now at this time politics in america was really corrupted so it hasn't changed much i was gonna say uh, at this time <laughs> yeah <laughs> still the same yeah <clears throat> so i uh his, although uh, his uh, President Hayes opponents stopped this nomination to keep uh, Theodore Sr. from getting that position and rooting out corruption. Theodore Sr. said he was relieved because he felt like stamping out corruption would be a terrible undertaking and very tiresome. He told his son, Theodore Jr., I feel sorry for the country. It shows the power, oh, as it shows the power of the partisan politicians who think nothing higher, think of nothing higher than their own interests. We cannot stand so corrupt a government for any great length of time. Reading this like hundred year old English gets hard because they put words in I don't expect. Yeah, and nobody listened. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, nobody did listen because it's the same. We can it's but it he he was right about that. But a uh he Theodore Jr. uh started getting a lot of uh understanding of the world and how politics worked from his dad when he was young. And so he his dad was a great f- influence on him cuz uh Theodore Jr. would later on to be a strong advocate for change and getting rid of corruption like Seriously, you'll find out here in a little bit. But in 1878, the following year after that, Theodore Sr. developed an intestinal tumor. He had colon cancer. And he kept this news from Theodore Jr. so he would focus on his studies. So that sucks. He didn't even tell his son. 
This tumor prevented him from eating, and eventually he died at the age of 46. So That's pretty young, man. <clears throat> yeah, that's... Intestinal issues suck. I know. I never had colon cancer, but I've had other te- intestinal issues, and ugh, that's awful. He couldn't even eat, so he just basically starved to death. Well, that's terrible. Uh, when he was dying, he sent for Theater Jr. to come by train, but his train did not arrive in time. He missed the death of his father by three or four hours. This devastated Theodore Jr. greatly. His father was his hero, and he looked up to him so much. Theodore Jr. wrote, Sometimes when I realize my loss, I feel as if I should go wild. He was everything to me. I have lost the only human being to whom I told everything. With the help of my God, I will try to lead such a life as he would have wished. That's heartbreaking. It really deeply hurt him and broke him on a profound, deep level. A few months after his father's death, Theodore suffered another loss. He had grown up and became very close friends with Edith Caro. Some of those close to Theodore suspected that Edith and him had an understanding that they would marry when they got older. However, in the summer of 1878, they fought and ultimately this ended their relationship. Neither Edith nor Theodore ever told anyone what had happened between them to cause this. Theodore only said, We both of us had bad tempers that were far from the best. So, pretty rough for him. They they were fighting. Yeah. (laughs) After these devastating losses, he sought solace in the outdoors and by staying active. He rode his horse so hard up and down the beach on Long Island that he injured it. He also shot a neighbor's dog for barking at him and eventually went into the woods of Maine to hunt and go hiking. He felt that he was restored when he was in the wilderness. And I actually understand that on a very deep level. Uh, That is one drawback of living in a large city like Houston. Like, I love living in Houston. I have no complaints about it. The only thing I don't like about Texas is uh, there's no mountains here. And there's no, like, I miss the mountains of California. I don't miss California. If we could take the mountains from California and put them here, that would be fantastic. Uh, But I do miss living in the woods and in the mountains because whenever I needed time to think or process stuff, I would just go out or hike in the woods or go on a drive. And it's just fun and refreshing being out in the trees or fishing in the small streams and rivers. Yeah, we definitely find that for the whites, that's kind of a necessity. They need to go <laughs> out where they can fish and hunt and drink Budweiser and perhaps Blue River. <laughs> Old Milwaukee if it's really poor. <laughs> Uh, depending on where you are, some of the more rural areas where people don't have a, uh, uh, let's say, the funds, they just get Keystone or Natty Ice. Oh, man. <laughs> That's just too far. <laughs> <laughs> so after the death of his father. <laughs> I'm so sorry. I just pictured, Because I just pictured Teddy laying back with his dad. In a boat somewhere, drinking Pabst Blue Ribbon. Oh my god! <laughs> and I mean, and he's like said he told his dad everything. So in my mind, that could just went south. You know, <laughs> here he is being like, listened, 
noble human being. You know, you're telling this story about how he's so, you know, close to his dad. And I'm just thinking, how close? Like, did he tell him, like, all oh, the dirt? Like, what really happened with him and this chick? And, you know. Yeah. I'd like to be a fly on the wall in those conversations, maybe. Oh, yeah. Because here's the I'm other sure. thing. Like, he grew up so privileged. I mean, yes, he struggled because he had a lot of these things, but they had the money to help him find ways to deal with it. Right. You know, my kid doesn't get a, a prize boxer to help him fight off bullies. I'm just like, dude, you got to get up quicker. I don't know. I'll tell you. <laughs> yeah. No, he was. He did grow up with, you know, a lot of privilege because his family was crazy wealthy. Uh, after the death of his father, Theodore inherited $125,000. That's $3.2 million in today's money. So this inheritance meant that he could live comfortably for the rest of his life. Yeah, but that's $3.2 million of our money, but that $3.2 million back then. Right. Which would be just tens of millions now, maybe more. Right. But see, the thing is, the, the money went further back right. then. Right, so too. the actual value of each dollar is probably 100 times more. So he, he was set. Like his, he, 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 was, he had a fortune. He, he would was never set. have he, to work a day in his life if he didn't want he, to. Yeah, exactly. He didn't have to do anything unless he wanted to. He basically could do whatever he wanted, which is kind of what he did. But <laughs> he, he uh, didn't do what a lot of people would do with an inheritance. He didn't make it all about himself. He, he did a lot of interesting things, as we'll get into. Um, he gave up on his plan of being a scientist. He loved natural science, and he, that's what is his plan. But he still graduated from Harvard, and then afterwards went to Columbia Law School to study law. But he sort of became disillusioned with that because he felt that law was irrational. So I feel you that there, Teddy. I feel you that there. Uh, therefore, <laughs> the, wow. The tongue tied Theodore had always been, you know, sickly thin and physically weak. He also had, ex yeah, like I said before, extremely poor vision. When he was about to graduate from Harvard, his doctor told him that he had a very weak constitution and a poor heart and recommended that he lead a very sedentary life. Roosevelt rejected this advice and said he would run up every set of stairs that he would ever come to. So he didn't care what anybody said. He didn't care what anybody recommended. He was going to be him. My mother was raised like that. She had a heart disease, you know, a heart mm -hmm. problem very early on. And they told her, you know, you're going to have to live this very protected. And it was until she became an adult. And when she got the freedom to make her own choices, she never stopped working, never stopped moving. And she's yeah. still alive. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Yep. <laughs> so then at, around this time, uh, Theodore Jr. began to write a book on naval. Okay, sorry. On the naval history of the War of 1812. Now, his uncles influenced and helped him with this book, since they were experts in naval warfare and ships. And then Theodore also got access and used official U.S. Navy records for sources in his book. He had and made drawings and charts of it, inside of it, of maneuvers and everything. Like He was very, very focused, very detailed, and very in-depth. In his book, he discussed the difference between the British and the U.S. Navy tactics and the leadership all the way down to the ship-to-ship -ship level. He also pointed out that if America had 
He also pointed out that America had nearly lost the War of 1812 because of its weak navy at the time, and the fact that the navy was so weak prolonged the war. This book would influence many people in the future, especially those in the U.S. Navy, on you know how Navy tactics were developed. So the dude was a prolific author, too. And he was very, very smart. And he really, really loved boats. So he can keep the boats. I don't like boats are fine, but I don't want to be falling in that water. You don't want to run into Seahawk. <coughs> nope. <laughs> I wonder if he knew like Seahawk's great great grandfather or something. Probably. <laughs> Just like that dog, he probably would have yelled at him and it would have shot him. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, so soon after this, uh, Theodore met a woman named Alice Lee at a classmate's home and he was determined to marry her. It took him a year to convince her, but he would not give up. And eventually they were married. Uh, she called him Teddy and he called her his sunny faced queen. Dude, like pet names must've been a whole lot more complicated back then. Sunny faced queen. Yeah. So he thought she was really hot. It was really the whole yeah. thing. He saw her and was like, damn. He even said that he said she looked so pretty, he felt that it was improper to touch her. I'd feel it was improper not to. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> so they were married on October 27th in uh, 1880 in Brookline, Massachusetts. He was a smart man because they got married on his birthday. So he would never forget their anniversary. Man, I, I should have done that second round. <laughs> yeah. That was pretty close. I, I could have waited. I, I saw that, and I was like, hmm, smart guy. And it's so, always uh, about you. <laughs> <laughs> well, I wouldn't even think of that, but. I would. You know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, let's not so, forget today's my birthday, okay? <laughs> uh, double BJ day. Double BJ. <laughs> uh, so. <laughs> Four years later, in 1844, um, not 1844, I wrote that down, year down wrong, uh, Alice gave birth to their daughter, Alice Lee Roosevelt. They, so they had a daughter. Uh, she had after, Alice Jr.? Yeah. So Alice, Alice? Yeah, it was Alice, Alice, his, her, Alice, his wife, name first name was alice her last name was lee but then they named their daughter alice lee roosevelt so she wasn't directly a junior but she had her mom's first and last name so two days after the birth of his daughter uh theodore's wife passed away she had bright's disease more it's kidney failure it's a kidney disease but because she was pregnant doctors were unable to notice it or diagnose it and the very same night Alice died, just 11 hours earlier, Teddy's mother, Mitty, had died of typhoid fever. Completely crushed, he wrote in his diary on that day, the light has gone out of my life with a large X. And while he grieved the loss of his mother and his wife, he left his daughter with his sister, Bammy, to take care of her. But he later took her, uh, his daughter back home when she was three. So, and inherited well, another $3.2 million. <laughs> so he was complete. I mean, yeah. I, dude, you could cry in your money, though. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> cry in 
<laughs> so sad. How am I going to afford therapy? <laughs> yeah, he was very, very devastated. I'm a horrible friend for making fun, making fun of his loss. That's really shitty of me, and I apologize. Please don't haunt me, Teddy. Please don't. Dude, if he was a ghost, if there was such a thing as ghost, he would be the last person I would want to haunt me. The dude had limitless energy. Yeah, but he could fart and probably throw money on the floor. <laughs> oh, Teddy farted again. There's another 20. <laughs> Perfect wand so, logic there. Perfect wand logic. Exactly. After attending Columbia Law School for a while, Teddy became interested in politics. Uh, he dropped out of Columbia Law School and began attending meetings at Morton Hall in New York City, where he had moved back to. His father had been a prominent member of the Republican Party, and he followed in his father's footsteps. He found allies locally and ultimately was elected as the youngest ever local assemblyman of the 21st District of Manhattan. He quickly made a name for himself by taking a stand against corruption. When wealthy financier Jay Gould attempted to lower his own taxes, Teddy blocked it. He then suspected Gould of bribing Judge Theodore Westbrook of collusion in this event. He proposed that there should be an investigation and tried to get the judge impeached. The investigation committee, however, rejected the impeachment, but Teddy had already exposed the corruption in the state government. This gave him a lot of positive press in the local newspapers. This strong focus on stamping or on, stop in, uh, on stopping corruption helped Teddy get reelected in 1882 by a large margin. The what? Sorry. He then ran for the speaker of the New York State Assembly but lost. Wow. So the dude the dude hated corruption. He was very passionate about, hey, if you're doing something that's against the law, we're just going to get you out of well, here. Well, like you said, that probably was spawned a lot with that feeling that he felt that his father w was corrupted when he bought his way out, and it really bothered him. And he was not going to ever have that be any part of his legacy yeah. of his life. He was never going to sell out. Right. Yeah. That that Like I said, that one moment when he was a boy... Like his the one thing his dad did that you know he was disappointed in his dad it really affected his whole life. Well, what it was was he realized he uses that privilege of money to make to benefit himself, and that's right. what these these politicians were doing: were patting their own pockets, lowering their taxes, so they have more money to better themselves. And although his, you know, and to, so to him he was kind of probably in his mind combating a lot of what he was upset about. You know that decision that his father made. So yeah. I can see what you're saying how that played out and he would have been aggressive about it because it was oh yeah it was he, close to home to him <clears throat> yeah very close to home so for the u.s president presidential election of 1884 teddy chose to support senator george f edmonds from vermont he had put a lot of effort he put in a lot of effort rallying support for Edmonds, gaining many supporters locally. He attended the GOP National Convention in Chicago and convinced the delegates to nominate African-American John R. Lynch to be temporary chair. Now, John R. Lynch was born as a slave in Louisiana. He was then freed by the Emancipation Proclamation uh, during the Civil War, and he was determined to make a difference. 
Lynch was a born leader and got into politics at a young age. He studied law, passed the bar, and worked in the Mississippi state government. He was the first African-American speaker of the Mississippi House of Representatives. Eventually, though, because of the increasing restrictions against African-Americans in Mississippi, he moved to Washington to set up a law practice there. I wanted to mention something about him. I thought his... We could do a whole episode on him. He was a pretty interesting guy. He started out as a slave, had nothing, and worked his way up, and became a lawyer. Wow. Especially in the, at that time, that would have been an almost insurmountable yeah. thing to do. Yeah, but he... He just, another one of those people that was like, nope, not taking no for an answer and just pushed on and worked hard. So Edmonds, uh, the guy that Teddy was, you know, trying to rally support for, was unable to beat out James G. Blaine. And despite not wanting to support Blaine for presidency, he did anyways to keep his role in the Republican Party. Having lost supporters and then the recent loss of his wife and mother, Teddy decided to retire from politics and moved west. So he lost his mom and he started losing support within the political party at the same time. So he was like, okay, I don't need to do this. I've got money. I'm going to move. So he chose to buy land in North Dakota where he purchased a cattle ranch. At this time, the cattle business was booming in North Dakota, and Teddy invested $14,000. That's $356,000 in today's money. Teddy loved the active cowboy life. He learned how to ride Western style, learned how to hunt better. I'm sure he already knew how to hunt, though, and roped on his ranch there. He also wrote three books at this time about hunting and ranching. The guy just the guy loved writing books. Uh, cowboys, local cowboys mocked him somewhat at first. They thought he was just a fancy man from New York trying to play tough. But after riding a few bucking horses and confronting some gunfighters, they grew to respect him. They never fully accepted him as one of them, but they did respect him. In one instance, a drunk man called him old four eyes to his face and Teddy knocked him out. Man, those were the days. <laughs> when you could just knock people out? Yeah, if you were like, Juan, your four chins, and then I could, you know, punch them out. <laughs> yeah. So, on his ranch, he built his own ranch house himself, and he called it Elkhorn. And he would go on long roundups. You know, one roundup he uh, went on. Uh, covered a thousand miles and was a month long. So he really was hands on in the operation of his ranch. He also, while he was in North Dakota on his ranch, he hunted down three thieves that had stolen a boat of his. He hunted them down, caught them, and then marched them 45 miles to the nearest sheriff's office. But before they got there, he made them stand for a photograph to recreate their capture with his own camera. And I saw a picture of this. It's super cool. So uh, Teddy is sitting on a log on the left of the photo, holding a rifle aimed at the three thieves who are on the right of the photo. At Teddy's feet is a dead deer. I guess he had to have something dead there. <laughs> Probably like here, but you, be happy you weren't this deer. And uh, one of the thieves is standing with his hat low, so you can't see his face like he's looking ashamed. And the other two are sitting on the ground looking off in different directions. One off into the distance and the other at the dead ear. 
And also, at his time in North Dakota, Teddy also shot a grizzly bear from 20 yards away right between the eyes. He's lucky his blind ass. <laughs> that would have been the end of Teddy. That, it would have been like yeah. that. They still might have had the invention of the teddy bear named after him <laughs> yeah. later, but uh, might have had a different meaning. More like uh, <laughs> Five Nights at Freddy or something. I don't know. Something like that. <laughs> <coughs> so in who that bear's in lucky eight, he didn't live though yeah because all the other bears were like really ted the blind guy with the hell <laughs> what's wrong with you bob yeah. you can't take out the blind you guy? didn't even run in a z pattern with... <laughs> we're bears man <laughs> you're a big giant grizzly bear he's a little scrawny guy He's got asthma, for God's sakes. <laughs> kind of grizzly bear gets taken down by a skinny little guy with asthma. <laughs> right between the eyes. Just shot dead. Lands right in, like, the carpet stance. Yeah. <laughs> but that's how uh, his life goes. He's just one of these people that just, he just goes for it. And yeah, shit yep. works out. Yep. So in 1887, the worst winter in the history of the West hit North Dakota. Most of Teddy's herd of cattle died. They were frozen to death in the harsh cold. In the area, hundreds of thousands of cattle died. This cost Teddy the money that he invested in his ranch and wound up being a financial disaster for him. But his attitude of get action helped him overcome this and the grief of the loss of his mother and wife. The time he spent in North Dakota made him stronger physically and mentally. His choice to move west and live a rough and dangerous life helped not only him in those areas, but it also helped him in his future political career. It's like, he how many lives is this guy? Like, how do you live that much life in one life? Exactly. Like, how old was he? Because it's like, man, yet he, he, he was in his 20s. He was in his mid-20s. When he did this? Yeah. This guy's already done more in his mid-20s than I did my whole life. Yeah. I'm starting to feel a little sedentary, if you know what I mean. <laughs> yeah. He wasn't just a rich man from New York anymore. He had experienced and lived through something more most Americans could identify with. A rough life fraught with danger and adventure. Teddy even said it himself. If it had not been for my years in North Dakota, I would have never become president of the United States. He also said of his time there, there were all kinds of things of which I was afraid of at first, but by acting as if I was not afraid, I gradually ceased to be afraid. Most men can have the same experience if they choose. I really do believe that's true, and I think that's a really good attitude to have. <clears throat> Don't let your fear stop you from doing something. So on December 2nd, 1886, Teddy married then his uh, childhood friend, Edith Kermit Caro. Yeah, her middle name is Kermit, just like the frog. Wow. Yeah. And I'm going to guess she's probably not the looker of the second. But, uh, she actually is. Oh, really? Well, you know what? You got to think about a... it, though. With his kind of money, he's going to be pulling top, <laughs> pulling top shelf ass here. Uh yeah. Let's, let's cut through the crap, people. It's not, he's not having to date the uh, ranch girl, right? It's going to be socialites. <laughs> yeah. Little pampered booties. And she was she was another socialite. Uh, his sisters uh, resisted this at first uh, when the engagement was announced, and he even felt himself that it was probably too soon. 
But they had been engaged for a year, but they had kept it a secret for the entire year. Teddy had even kept her name out of his personal diary during their engagement by simply writing the letter E instead of Edith. Uh, Edith then, once they were married, Edith asked Teddy if she could raise his daughter Alice as her own. Teddy agreed to this. And he asked his sister Bammy to send her home. And Bammy said that it broke her part, broke her heart to let her go, but she did it regardless. Okay, I'm gonna name my next daughter Bammy. <laughs> what in the hell were they thinking? It was a different time, I, dude. Uh, well, were there stripper poles? Because that's what she's added. <laughs> next on stage, Bammy. <laughs> that's better than Kermit. It's not easy being great. <laughs> uh, in September of 1887, uh, Edith gave birth to their son. Uh, they named him Theodore Roosevelt Jr. So he was Junior Jr. The third? Yeah, it was instead of the third, they just named him Junior. So oh his dad was Junior. So it was just another Junior. Going back to Kentucky again, I guess. Junior, <laughs> well, junior. I was, <clears throat> when I found that, I was like, why, dude? Seriously. Like, come on. You were already a junior, at least to a third. But they didn't do that. So they had four more children after this. <laughs> Can you imagine going lived- to, like, their Christmas thing, right? The family's <laughs> all around. It's like, like you're to meet Aunt Pammy. Here's Junior, Junior. Like, no, they're going to start sounding like inbreds. <laughs> <laughs> Just saying. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone's stuttering when they make the kids junior junior. I want an Aunt Bammy. Sounds like the start to a Pornhub video. Sorry, Teddy. Because that was the other thing I thought about. Was that where, like, you know, Teddy, like the lingerie Teddy came out? I was like, good job, man. <laughs> Not just the teddy bear anymore, buddy. nope uh so after losing half of his fortune in the cattle business theater turned back to uh turned back to writing books to earn more money to supplement the rest of his inheritance like he didn't really need to work but he wanted to you know just be a little bit more financially secure so he kept writing uh he wrote a four volume history book called the winning of the west about, you know, America conquering the West. And it became a bestseller. Apparently, he was like an avid writer. I've seen one of his books before at a used bookstore, and now I wish I would have bought it. Now I'm curious and I'd like to read one. Maybe I'll find one on Amazon for cheap or something. Uh, he also was appointed by President Benjamin Harrison to the United States Civil Service Commission in Washington, D.C., where he worked on reforms and rooted out an unqualified postmaster. He was really pissed about corruption. <laughs> like he was like, oh, this guy's unqualified. Get him out of here. How are you an uh, unqualified postmaster? I have no idea, but that's a very good, you know, very good. Like, what are the qualifications point. for that job back then? It, it couldn't. <coughs> it couldn't have been too technical back then. No. Lick stamp, put on paper. I don't know. Like, what? <laughs> what kind of credentials is he not? Got a high enough saliva count? What's going on? <laughs> but he's not capable of doing this job. I mean, damn, they're riding horses. It's not like they're flying planes. There's no logistics. I mean, take that trail till you find people. Okay. <laughs> you just don't seem fit for this, sir. I 
<laughs> Sorry. I don't know. I don't know what the qualifications. Maybe it's just that he was probably skimming funds and, you know, he's Could have been not down too. for that. Yeah. But uh, he was so fair and impartial as his time at his time there. He was appointed again by the next president, the Democratic president, Grover Cleveland. Grover Cleveland really respected him. It was like, hey, you're going to you're doing a good job. I don't care if you're Republican. We're going to give you the same job back. So this experience then taught him about how politics in Washington, D.C. worked, and it helped him make connections and friends who would later on help him when he became president of the United States. That really puts hats off to Grover Cleveland, too, for having the uh, cojones to keep him on and not just play politics. That really shows he had some... They might have been on the same page there, you know, as far as their uh, honesty, I guess. Yeah. Well, yeah, that... You know, that's actually, you know, give some respect to him for doing that. You know, he's like, oh, yeah, this guy's, you know, doing his job and he's doing a great job. In uh, 1894, a group of Republicans from New York asked Theodore to run for mayor of New York City. Uh, But he declined because his wife didn't like the idea of leaving her social circles in Washington, D.C., not luck not long after he came, after oh my goodness not long after this he came to the realization that he had missed a chance to revive his political career this led him to go back to north dakota for a little while obviously to like you know get out some frustration and kill a bunch of animals or do whatever he was going to do and you know run around the forest uh edith saw the effect on this had on him and was regretful of her role in that decision she later then promised him that she would never do that to him again. So she was like, hey, you know, I'm never going to press you to not take a job if it's something you really want. You know, I'm going to support you. Did he like slam the door and was like, I'm out. And then like went to North Dakota. <laughs> like, I can't do that. <laughs> Shit. <laughs> I don't know. I've but, actually, uh, been a couple of times. I'm like, I'm going to get a flight to Houston. I'm out of here. Well, <laughs> well Houston is uh, welcoming and it's not 10 degrees here. You know, you know, it's fucked up. Dude, today during the hottest part of the day, it was 19 yeah. degrees today. <laughs> I was outside loading the car's groceries in a t-shirt. And, uh, oh, my goodness. This lady comes up behind me, an old lady, and smacks me in the head. She's like, wear a coat. <laughs> I'm like, eat some ranch. Look at me. I'm fat. I'm fine. <laughs> eat some ranch. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Uh, okay. Not long after this. Uh, The mayor of New York then asked Teddy to be on the board of the New York City Police Commissioners. Teddy accepted this position and became the president of the board of commissioners. He instituted many unpopular changes to the police force, regular firearms inspections, annual physical exams, and he also made it so that appointments to positions on the police force were based solely on a candidate's physical and mental qualifications rather than their political affiliations. He also exposed and rooted out corruption in the police force. You know, every, every wa- fat cop back then was like, this over-exercising <laughs> bastard. Now he's going to make us take physical exams every year? Have you yep. seen the local police where you live? They don't have that shit now. They got that shit rooted out probably pretty quick. That's, yep. I mean, why, do, why are cops anonymous with donuts? All right? Yeah. Uh, Teddy didn't win long term, but boy, they were probably pissed. 
<laughs> oh, they were. Uh, he also would walk the bleeds, the bleeds, the beads that the pleats walked late at night and early in the morning to make sure the officers who were on duty were not drinking or sleeping. And he would take newspaper reporters along with him on his late night walks to try and catch lazy or drunk police officers. His new changes were met with severe protests and demonstrations. He was once invited to one public demonstration where he accepted the invitation. And while the people were there protesting him, they hurled insults at him. And he just reveled in the experience, not letting it affect him. He was just like, whatever, I don't care. Which I think was pretty cool. He just stood up for what he believed in. He's like, well, people uh, be mad. Probably feels like I do sometimes when you piss the right people off. (laughs) (laughs) Kind of makes you happy. Is that bad? I don't know. I think if you really believe in something and everyone's mad at you about it, you just stand by what you believe. I think that's what he was doing. He was like, you know, he was against corruption and people were corrupt. And he was like, I'm going to clean this place up. And he did. And everyone was mad. He's like, fine, be mad. I don't care. So theater wound up facing more and more resistance during his time there, but kept on moving up in the political world. In 1897, President William McKinley appointed him as the Assistant Secretary of the Navy. This was a dream come true for him because of his uncles and oh yeah, because of his interest in ships and he because of his uncles he had always had a great love for the Navy. At the time, the Secretary of the Navy, John D. Long, was in very poor health, and John D. Long left many of the big decisions up to Roosevelt. So he basically was the Secretary of the Navy. Uh, At this new post, he called for more battleships to be built and for the overall buildup of the country's navy. He was concerned for the nation's national security, specifically in the Caribbean and in the Pacific. He also did not like the fact that Spain had control of Cuba and was very vocal that they be removed from it. When the Cubans wanted the Spanish out of Cuba, he wanted the United States to step in and help liberate them, but not everyone wanted another war. This wasn't all that long after the Civil War. So, But Roosevelt strongly believed that the British Empire was in decline, and it was, and he knew that some other country would wind up filling that power vacuum. He was determined for the United States to take that place of power. He believed that the United States needed a good navy to do so. He was against any European country having rule over any land in the Americas. He believed that the Spanish should be forced out of Cuba and the British should be forced out of Canada. He even, like I even read, he even, like, support. somebody had the idea of going to war with Canada to take it from the British, and he was on board with that. It just never really gained any momentum. Really? Actually, yeah, and actually I believe in, ugh, there was another war later on, like World War One or World War Two. there was, like, some contingency plan if for America to invade uh, Canada and take it, but I don't remember exactly the details on that. I'll have to look that up, find out the truth on that now i'm curious uh but on february 15th 1898 the art the united states armored cruiser the uss maine mysteriously exploded in the harbor of havana cuba this killed 266 of the crew 
Roosevelt and others blamed Spain for the explosion, but President McKinley wanted to find a diplomatic solution rather than going to war. McKinley had fought in the Civil War and didn't want any more Americans to die, saying that he had seen enough death already and didn't want to see any more. Roosevelt was extremely angry, and behind McKinley's back, he said that McKinley had the backbone of a chocolate eclair. <laughs> For those of you who don't know what's in the middle of a chocolate eclair, it's just goo. So he's like, he has no backbone. Uh, just cream. So, yeah. Despite this, and without approval, uh, Theodore ordered several naval vessels to prepare for war. So he was like, we're going to, he told the Navy basically, get ready. Even though the country wasn't at war. So the, the Navy got ready. Uh, two months later, in April, President McKinley gave up on a diplomatic solution and asked Congress to declare war on Spain. This led to the outbreak of the Spanish-American War. Now, uh, U.S. Navy Commodore George Dewey was in command of the Asiatic Squadron and got the position because Roosevelt had appointed him there. His fleet was on high alert because of Roosevelt's advanced orders, and he was ready to attack the Spanish fleet in the Philippines. After Congress declared war on Dewey, uh, declared war on Spain, Dewey sailed the American fleet into the Manila Bay and destroyed the entire Spanish fleet without losing a single American sailor. After the Spanish-American War, Dewey said that they were able to win the Battle of Manila Bay because Roosevelt had given the orders in advance and they had time to prepare for the attack. Despite this victory, Spain still had control of Cuba. Theodore saw this as his chance to do what his father didn't do, fight for his country. He resigned from his post as Secretary of the U.S. Navy, and he started the, or Assistant Secretary of the U.S. Navy, he, start, he started the first United States volunteer cavalry with the U.S. Army. So he was a volunteer soldier in the Army. So his family strongly protested his decision. His wife begged him to stay in Washington and not to go to war, but he refused. <clears throat> Later, he said, I would have turned from my wife's deathbed to answer that call. So he was, he was going to war, no matter what anybody said or did. He was determined to see battle and not to do the same thing that his father had done. He was 39 years old at the time. He had six children, and his wife was severely ill from complications from just giving birth. He wrote that he must walk what he talked, and he must live up to his own standard of honor and left from the war despite all of this. So the dude was pretty stubborn and dedicated to what he believed in. Yeah, and I mean, uh, like you <coughs> said, he had the, already the average. He was already set, and he was still even yeah. part of it. You know what I mean? Just yeah. had a, but not in a combat. So he no. was, but he felt that he needed to be put in the same place an average person would have been. That, and he really wanted to, he really, I think he really felt, well, I mean, you can see, he really felt like he wanted to make up what for his dad didn't do. Like he just wasn't going to, you know, when the country went to war, he was going to answer the call and go to war. Even but you if can he see why there. people would then thoroughly respect him. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that a, that's, a, that's a bad mofo. Yeah. So uh, his unit that he created of volunteers became known as 
Roosevelt's Rough Riders. And they even had their own theme song. I wish I could hear that. Uh, Roosevelt was extremely eager to get into battle. Like, extremely eager. When his unit was commanded to sail from Tampa, Florida to Cuba, they were told to wait for the second group of ships leaving that day. Roosevelt was so impatient, he defied orders, commandeered a ship for him and his unit, and set off for Cuba. Their mission was to capture the city of Santiago, 19 miles away from the landing point. But after they had set off on their way to Santiago, they were ambushed by the Spanish, but ultimately they uh, overcame the Spanish in that particular battle. They pressed on further to Kettle and San Juan Hill near Santiago. The Rough Riders assaulted the Spanish positions first on Kettle Hill and then on San Juan Hill. Roosevelt led his men forward through heavy enemy fire. He led his men on horseback up the hill saying... (laughs) This is crazy. He was on top of a horse, and he was saying, Are you afraid to stand up while I'm here on horseback? (laughs) They pushed up the hill, taking massive losses, but they took the hill and defeated the Spanish on the first hill. On that assault, he was hit in the wrist by shrapnel, but it only left a bruise, and a bullet hit his elbow, but it was only a graze. After taking Kettle Hill, he saw the battle on San Juan Hill and was so eager to get back into the fight left the hill with only five men without giving the order for the, to the rest of his men to attack the next hill. He had to circle around, come back, rally his men, and bring them up to San Juan Hill to drive the Spanish out. No, he didn't have ADHD at all. <laughs> oh, shit, I forgot my men. <laughs> yep. Maybe, maybe, a little, maybe a little bipolar. <laughs> Maybe I am on horse, you pussy. Like what? <laughs> yeah, it's just like what? And he like didn't get injured, even like minor nicks and a bruise. Like I was like, how did the Spanish not be like shoot the guy on the horse? <laughs> like the easiest target out there. But he never got shot there. So uh, later on, theater said that he was proud of what they did there, and that no hunting trip could ever compare to it. He also said that one of his greatest regrets was not receiving a ghastly or disfiguring wound in the war. So he wanted to come home with a war wound, I guess. I guess is like, you know, bragging rights or something. Okay, that's a little too macho. (laughs) Like, it's already in the records, bro. You were in charge, all right? You ran up the hill on a horse. What else do you need? Dude, they missed you. It's an awesome story. Why do you got to get hit? Like... Yeah. Already, oh, you know, uh, think about it though. What? He's single. No, he wasn't. He was remarried. Oh yeah, he was remarried again. Yeah, so it wasn't even like he needed to get ass. I don't know. I see no logic in it. <laughs> 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 yeah, it was just. Yeah, I would never be like, hey, I want to come back up from a war disfigured or injured. No, disfigured. I want to be disfigured. <laughs> Disfigured. Ah! I thought you uh, said, I thought, oh yeah, you did no, say no, disfigured. No. I said disfigured. My wife would be but so it came disappointed. Out dis- it would just be awful. <laughs> All this congestion is like, whenever I get in front of a microphone, you get, you, sometimes you get that flemminess. It's like you sit down in front of a microphone, all of a sudden, bam, phlegm. You know, you start mumbling your words when you were fine before. No, I, well, now I got congestion and phlegm, and it's like, ah, great. No, I'm when you said that, I just pictured myself being a soldier and having to call home and be like, Chaz, I'm, I'm, I was, I was shot. 
in in uh but here's the good news i'm gonna make it uh the bad news was i've been disfingered and then i had to explain <laughs> that to her and then she still pissed <laughs> well that's just some bullshit i mean <sighs> whatever <laughs> you're not even left-handed you better get working on that oh boy so after returning to America, Theodore then ran for governor of New York and won by only 1%. While he was governor, he learned about the issues that were pressing at that time, uh, the problems of trust, big companies, monopolies, labor disputes, and conservation. All things which would come up in his presidency and he would address then. He held uh, press conferences twice a day, which was new at the time, to remain connected with the local people. And in November of 1899, Vice President Garrett Hobart died. This left an open spot on the Republican ticket. Theodore thought that it was a powerless position and he didn't want to take it, but later accepted and ran and won, uh, won the nomination unanimously. <laughs> he spent, oh, dude, I've been, I've been researching this all day. I've been sitting in front of this computer since like 10 or 11 o'clock this morning. My eyes are just, everything just jumbles into a blur right now. <laughs> Gonna party like it's 1899. <laughs> I, know. I wonder if they were afraid of like, nine, you know, like Y2K, like, oh no. You know, stuff's not going to work when it rolls over to the new year. All the ink's going to dry up. <laughs> Thank God we got that new postmaster who knows what he's doing. Exactly. Oh, my goodness. Okay, so uh, he basically became the vice president and only spent six month, months as the vice president. And his six months as vice president was very uneventful. Uh, at this time was when he came up with his saying, speak softly and carry a big stick and you will go far. That's kind of a cool quote but uh, on september 6 1901 president mckinley was shot on vacation in vermont like seriously the dude was on vacation someone tried to assassinate him <clears throat> imagine that like back in the day when you could just like go find the president on vacation and shoot him and i'm not gonna say those are the days but if you were gonna commit those kind of crimes it probably would have been a lot easier then <laughs> yeah that's just crazy. Like, oh, yeah, the president's in Vermont. You go, where's he at? Oh, he's over there. Just walk over. Bam. Like, man, like security was not a thing back then. Uh, Roosevelt traveled to Buffalo, New York to visit President McKinley in the hospital, but left when it was expected that he would recover. However, President McKinley died on September 14th, and Roosevelt was then sworn in as the 26th president of the United States. As president, Roosevelt went hard after trusts and monopolies who restricted trade and charged unfair prices. He brought up against these businesses 44 antitrust suits, which broke up the Northern Securities Company, the largest railroad monopoly, and regulated the Standard Oil Company, which is now Chevron. Um, the three previous presidents had only brought 18 antitrust suits between them in their three terms combined so yeah. he did he did more in one term than the last three presidents did in three terms he was adamant about making changes and in may of 1902 uh the coal miners went on strike now coal mining if you don't know anything about it is a 
brutal, especially back then, was a brutally hard job, crazy long hours, like 16 hours a day, terrible pay. But so finally, these coal miners were like. Horrible health condition. Yeah. Horrible health conditions, short lifespan, just a terrible, terrible. Risk of death every day. Yeah. In cave-ins, plus they were breathing all that coal dust. Yeah. Yeah. Terrible job. So these uh, men went on strike and wanted better working conditions and hours and pay and all that. So this led to, but it was this led to many people being with le- without you know heat and many were cold. So there was an energy shortage. Imagine if the power just went off, you know, all over the country. Well, you'd it's be fine. <laughs> yeah, I'd be. It's essentially what it preserved was preserved until spring. I think sometimes. Yeah, sometimes I would be a little chilly, but I'd throw another blanket on the bed and I'd be okay. You could thaw us out uh, in May and do the autopsies then here. <laughs> exactly. Be like, wow, Jasmine resorted to eating one. I didn't expect that. <laughs> I did. <laughs> he's slow. He's fat. He tastes delicious. <laughs> Got that nice marbly look to him. Oh yeah. <laughs> Roosevelt the, went to the coal companies and told them that if they didn't end the strike, he would send in troops to force them to. <laughs> He threatened them with military action. So he just didn't. He was he he was just so bold. It was just like, I'm going to do whatever needs to be done to get stuff done. Like the dude was just a firecracker, I guess. He just like very bold, very just rah. Uh, the companies were appalled and angry, but Roosevelt didn't back down. So the coal companies then ultimately gave in, and this resulted in the miners receiving better pay for fewer hours, but they were not recognized as a union. So kind of tried to find a middle ground there to keep everybody happy. This action made Roosevelt the first president to ever help settle a labor dispute. Roosevelt was still very adamant about rooting out corruption, I'll say. He moved quickly and decisively to prosecute misconduct in his own administration. He found corruption in the Indian Service, the Land Department, and the Post Office. He brought indictments for 44 different government employees in char- on charges of bribery and fraud, and he would have them prosecuted and jailed if you know they were found guilty. Uh, he really, really hated corruption. Like, he was just clean in house everywhere he went. He also brought laws to regulate railroad companies to keep their prices from staying unreasonably high. He also pushed through the Meat Inspection Act and the Pure Food and Drug Act to keep the food and drug companies in check and keep the food that was being sold clean and good to eat. Apparently, that was a problem back then. But I guess it was because he pushed these laws through. Uh, Because of his time outdoors, Roosevelt was also a strong supporter of conservation and established the United States Forest Service and signed laws that created five national parks. He also established 150 national forests, four game preserves, and 51 bird sanctuaries. He also, as president, he won the Nobel Peace Prize for helping Japan and Russia bring an end to the Russo-Japanese War. The diplomats met with Roosevelt in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, where they signed a treaty. And actually, Portsmouth, New Hampshire is really, really pretty place. I've been there. I would love to go back there. Not in the winter, in the summer. In the winter, it's awful because it's just snow. But it's pretty beautiful there. 
<clears throat> and I never knew about that, you know, he met with them there and the war ended there because the treaty was signed there. I, you know, I was like, wow, that's cool. I wish I would have known that when I was there. I would have tried to look for like, you know, the place where that was if it's still there. Uh, he also increased the size of the U.S. Navy. Uh, only British, only the British had more battleships at the time than the United States did. So he was like, oh, we're just going to make ourselves, you know, a really sweet Navy. So then came to his next pet project, which was the Panama Canal. Now, in the 1800s, the French had begun construction on the Panama Canal. And after the construction had been in the process for many years, they ran into many problems. High worker death rates, mudslides, floods, and disease just kept slowing them down. The French company that initially started the project eventually went bankrupt and the work stalled. Just completely stopped. Uh, a new group took over, but Panama was still under Colombian rule at the time, and they couldn't get things going because of the Colombians. They didn't want to cooperate with this new group. Roosevelt believed that it would be a great st strategic advantage if the United States could control a canal in Central America. He urged the U.S. government to buy the rights to the French-owned land there, and then this was authorized, and they purchased the land from the rights for the land from the French. But Colombia refused to go along with this agreement, so he was like, "Well, how are we going to get around this?" Not everybody supported him in this. They were like, just focus on American interests. Forget about the rest of the world. Who cares? And he was determined to, you know, U.S. to have control of the Panama Canal. So, and finish it, actually. So, at the time, there were rebels in Panama who wanted to be free from Colombian rule. Roosevelt implied to them, he never said it outright, but he implied to them that if they were to revolt, that the U.S. Navy might intervene on their behalf. So, not long after, Panama declared its independence from Colombia, and the USS Nashville, which was in the area, kept the Colombians from interfering with the revolution. So, he used his awesome navy to get his way. The new Panama government then turned around and gave the United States control of the Panama Canal Zone in 1904 for $4 million, <clears throat> which seems like change for what they got. And then they finished the Panama Canal. Roosevelt used, also would use the press to his advantage regularly. Uh, outside of having frequent interviews, he also treated them with kindness. One rainy day, he saw many reporters outside huddled in the rain and invited them inside and gave them their own room, essentially inventing the presidential press briefing. Grateful for this kind treatment, the press wrote of him favorably. In 1904, Roosevelt ran for re-election and won by 56% of the popular vote and 336 to 140 in the Electoral College. So he just crushed it. Uh, Roosevelt pledged that he would not run for a third term. He believed that term limits was a check against dictatorship. However, at the time, there were no term limits on the president of the United States. Uh, actually, interesting, when his distant cousin, FDR, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, was president, he uh, served four terms and died in his fourth term in office. So his brother did not uh, abide by that rule <laughs> or abide by that belief. Although it was a different time. He got America through the Great Depression and World War II, so I kind of think he felt compelled that he really wanted to stick it out. A slightly uh, known fact about that Panama Canal that's interesting is yeah. my parents were stationed in Panama in the canal zone 
when yeah. they were in the when my dad was in the Air Force, and that's how we got adopted out of Costa Rica. So thank you, Teddy. Oh, sweet. Or so I you would, would not be here nope. if it wasn't for Teddy Roosevelt. That is absolutely correct. I would not have been able to immigrate. Uh, wow. Now I, that that's actually really cool to know. I didn't know it either until now. So your life would a whole lot been a whole lot different if he had not really given a crap about the Panama Canal. Right, because, that is so because cool. the Americans controlled it. That's why we had a military base there. And we were in close proximity and needed to be adopted. And, uh, yeah, so... Because they were stationed in the in the canal zone, <laughs> we were adopted from that. It's just crazy how the world works in history. And, <laughs> yeah. Uh, so thanks, That's Ted. Super cool. Thank you, Teddy Bear. After his uh, second term as president, he then you know needed something to do. So what did he do? Uh, he led an expedition to Africa and then also traveled to Europe. Uh, on his expedition to Africa, Roosevelt and his group killed or trapped. Over 11,000 animals and insects, even hippos and elephants. They sent back so many amples, so amples, wow, they sent back so many animals, it took them years to mount them all. That's insane. The dude just was like hunting everything in Africa. <laughs> After returning to America, he had a fallout with the Republican Party and then President, you know, the then President Taft. Uh, because of their different viewpoints, Roosevelt and a few other allies started the new Progressive Party, which then became known as the Bull Moose Party. After Roosevelt told reporters, "I'm as fit as a bull moose." Once again, he was running for the people and trying to protect them from the selfish interests of the rich and the powerful. <clears throat> but while campaigning for a third re-election in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, Roosevelt was shot by a saloon keeper named John Flamang Shrank. Man, I'm probably not saying that right, but that's what it looks like. Uh, the bullet passed through his steel eyeglass case and 50-page single-folded copy of his speech in his jacket pocket before lodging in his chest. Shrank was caught right away, and Roosevelt told everyone that he was all right and shouted that no one should harm him, or should harm his attacker. Yeah, the people wanted to lynch him. They wanted to kill him. Uh, but he was like, no, no, I'm okay. And then he ordered that the police take Shrank into custody, but not harm him on the way to the police station. Okay, hey, no. take him away, but don't mess him up. We know what you guys do. All right, let's not be kicking the <laughs> shit out of him before we get to the house, all right? <laughs> Gotta be able to lock wow. him safe in the house without getting his ass kicked. <laughs> so, being an avid hunter, he noticed that he was not coughing up blood, and he assumed that the bullet had not pierced his lung. And he declined to go to the hospital and stood up and gave his speech. Uh, he, so he was like, I'm fine. I'm in a little bit of pain, and he had blood on his jacket, but it wasn't bleeding profusely, so he's like, yeah, I'm good enough, so he gave his whole speech. Took a shot in the chest. Yep. And then I was like, yeah, fuck it. Yep. Speech. Yep. Still was like, yeah, I'm not, my bullet's, the bullet's not my You lung, know, people that hated him were like, what the fuck? Can this guy die? Oh, yeah. Like, you know what I mean? Like, can he be killed? Yeah. Can't hit him on a horse, <laughs> and then when you finally do, hit him right in the freaking chest, he's just like, yeah. <laughs> he just shrugs yeah. it off. Yeah, I'm okay. He, after the speech, went to the doctors, and they told him that it would be 
too dangerous for them to try and remove the bullet, so they left it in his body and it stayed there in his chest for the rest of his life. Uh, Also, it kind of led to some more of his further health problems, unfortunately. Uh, Roosevelt, however, did not win the election and then went on another expedition to South America. On this South American expedition, he received a leg wound which became infected. This, along with the bullet wound, was too much for his body, and he had frequent fevers and was frequently sick. But he still finished the expedition, but was sick most of the time. The dude, like, he just didn't care how sick he was or what was wrong with him. He just pushed on no matter what. It it was saying during that South American expedition, he frequently and regularly had fevers of 103. That's good. And just was like, yeah. That's dangerous. And it was like, man, I'm fine. <clears throat> and then uh, during World War I, Roosevelt strongly supported the Allies and demanded a harsher policy against Germany. He really did not like Germany. Uh, he thought they were a little power crazy and power hungry and was like, we should mess them up. Uh, he openly denounced President Woodrow Wilson's foreign policy. And later, when the United States entered the war, he asked for permission to raise four divisions similar to the one he created, the Rough Riders. Congress approved of this, but President Wilson would not allow Roosevelt or his divisions to travel to France for the war. Roosevelt was furious and felt betrayed by Wilson, and he never forgave him for this. And then on January 5th, 1919, just a year after World War I ended, Roosevelt died from difficulty breathing. The doctor had just visited him, and, you know, he went to bed. His last words were, Please put that light out, James, to his family servant. He died in his sleep after a blood clot detached from his veins and traveled into his lungs, and he was 60 years old. Wow, what a life in 60 years, though. He lived more in 60 years than most people. If I relived my life 10 times, I wouldn't do that much shit. Exactly. And the silver lining from this story, uh, for me, is... Uh, your mental attitude and outlook on life is so important. Like you really are what you tell yourself you are because adversity and loss can make you or break you. But ultimately the choice is up to you. Like each of us face like hardship and tragedy in our lives, but it's up to you what you do in those moments. Some people choose to let the pain and loss hold them back and some let them change, let it change them for the better. And he just used the let those opportunities help him to grow, which is really, really impressive. That's very inspiring. Very, very inspiring. So that was Teddy Roosevelt. And Juan's looking like a teddy bear right now with his shirt off. I'm trying to feel more like Uncle Boris. (laughs) You need a gold chain. Oh, my goodness. Although, here's the thing. It might be like zero outside. But yeah. in this room, I think it's like 85 because <laughs> it's like set to nursing home standards in the house. So. Oh, yeah, because your mom yeah. wants it like 110 in there. It's cold. I'm like, oh, my God. <laughs> She's like, okay, Ma, the power bill is going to be $3,000 because of this. <laughs> Dude, it's not even that far off. It's like, <laughs> seriously, man, our electric bills just, it would make most people just cry. Yeah. Go into bankruptcy. <laughs> I've, you know, and I've done what I can do, but, you know, we've got, you know, eight people here. So, 
<laughs> Yikes. Yeah, that's true. It's like a compound. Oh, man. It's like <laughs> I mean, and there's only two bathrooms. Like that seems like okay, but uh you run a lot of yeah. those uh let's just say it's a good thing we got a big yard. That's uh <clears throat> Well, that's actually only one and a half bathrooms. Yeah, yeah, it's not you're right. It's not even full bath. That's like one There's only one shower in that place. Yeah. It that shower that poor shower man, it gets used like around the clock. Oh, I'm sure. That's why I was such a huge water heater. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you have to. Eight people showering. Yikes. And you take multiple showers a day like me. Yeah. This but this that water this hot water heater is so big though, we have not yet run it out. That's good. With that many people. So, you know, it, we needed it. Yeah. Teddy probably needed it a lot while he was out on them hunting trips, but it was about that. <laughs> oh my goodness. Well you gotta figure like that's you know, the fact that he would die from an infection like that's really not a surprise. I mean, yeah. it, it's more of a surprise that it didn't happen, like, at war. You know, like... Yeah, it actually is. Or maybe one of the times he got shot, but he would have gotten, like, professional medical care right away. But, you know, when they say expedition, it's not like an REI expedition. This dude probably was out there, like, for real, like, trudging through swamp yeah. water in the Amazon <laughs> with an open wound, you know. He's got I'll just let the piranhas clean it out in the morning, just stick my leg in real quick. <laughs> like, that's the shit you do, right? They'll see the yeah. they'll see the dead flesh. I'll be fine. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> that was really yeah. fun, man. I really like that. Yeah, that was that was really really good. And I'll never think of the word fritter the same way again. That's right. <laughs> Get ready. I just think of fritter, and then I'll think of ranch. Oh no. <laughs> Horrible friend. <laughs> oh my goodness. So everybody, uh thank you very much for tuning into this episode and listening to us. Uh we will, you know, see you soon. Seahawk Predator out. Have a good night. Or day. Or uh whatever private moment you're having. <laughs> Bye-bye.